Well, good morning, and welcome to Hope Community Church. I'm Pastor Trevor. I'm glad you could join us uh, this morning. Um, those of you joining us online, welcome as well. Looks like the Lord providentially has blessed us with a beautiful day uh, for the picnic, so I hope all of you will be staying uh, for that. We have plenty of food, uh, that's for sure, uh, so please help prevent some of us from gaining more weight by divvying up the food amongst our stomachs. Before we begin our message this morning, let's go to our Father in Heaven in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity that is before us. Thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you that we're able to hear the testimony of crew and what they're doing, the ministry of Todd and Debbie, their faithfulness to it. And now, Father, we come to hear your voice, your word. We ask that you would help our spirits, our souls to be focused, to not be distracted this morning, but to hear your teaching that you would have for us and that your spirit would convict us um, accordingly and encourage us as needed as well. Father, may we go from here um, encouraged, equipped, sanctified, so that we can glorify you in all that we do. We ask this, Father, uh, by the power of the Spirit, and in the name and the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We have come to the final chapter of Hebrews, so we're in Hebrews chapter 13, so I would invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapters 13. We'll be in uh, verses 1 through 6. If you need a Bible, we have a few uh, throughout the seats um, around you, otherwise it will be on uh, the screen um, above me. Um, we will break this chapter into uh, three segments. Uh, so we have the first portion this week, and the next two weeks we'll, be, uh, we'll cover uh, the rest of chapter uh, 13. And then after that, uh, we'll go into a, a series of, of topics. We'll cover, I'll do a, a sermon initially on assurance of salvation. In other words, how do you know that you are saved? Because after going through Hebrews, with all the warnings and all the challenging messages, you, you might be paranoid like, am I saved? I don't know. Will I, will I endure? I, I, I don't know. So we're going to talk about how we can have assurance as believers. Um, and then we'll go into, um, I'll preach a series on our expectations of members within the church, why we have them, how they're biblical. Uh, I'll probably preach on a few psalms. And then we will go into Judges. Judges will be the next uh, book that we will cover. And so we'll start Judges September, October time frame. We'll see how uh, the Lord leads uh, there. Now, chapter 13 is not directly connected to the main point uh, of the letter. We are kind of uh, departing from the author's main argument of Jesus being our mediator, how he's the better mediator because he belongs to a better priesthood, the Melchizedekian priesthood, and because he belongs to a better covenant, and the, and the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. We're kind of leaving that, that argument, but we're not leaving it completely. Uh, the finer exhortations in, in chapter 13, uh, the author gives them to us to help us understand how we, as a community and as individuals, can faithfully endure to the end, how we are able to persevere through it all um, and to, in order that we would enter into the promised rest of chapter 4. Now this morning, uh, our passage, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 13, focuses on the topic of brotherly love, both outside the body of believers as well as inside the body. 
So let's go ahead. We'll read the passage in its entirety. And then after we read it, I'll break down for you the path that I intend to take us uh, through. So Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So in verse 1, we get the main, the primary exhortation of our passage, and that is let brotherly love continue, or let brotherly love persist. Let it remain. Let it continue onward. Then in verses 2 through 6, we get four more exhortations on how we are to let brotherly love continue or persist among us. And we will look at each exhortation in the order that the author presents them. And you'll notice that the author, in, in regards to the scope, he goes from big to small and perhaps even easiest to hardest. For example, the first exhortation in verse 2 pertains to showing hospitality to strangers, those outside the community. So that, that's, a, that's a big group. So he starts big, and as, as we'll find out, it's perhaps easier. The second exhortation, verse 3, is to remember those in prison and those who are mistreated for the faith. So now we're getting more narrow in that scope. Now it's not just anyone, but it is those of the faith and those of the faith who are mistreated or those who are in prison for the faith. And then the third exhortation, verse 4, is to honor marriage, even smaller, right? Now we have two people. And then the final exhortation, verses 5 and 6, the final exhortation ends with ourselves, the individual, that we are to be free from the love of money and content with what we have. So let us consider how we are to let brotherly love continue by considering the author's first exhortation found in verse 2. Let's read it again. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So the author begins by saying, don't neglect hospitality. Now notice the emphasis here. He's not saying, he doesn't say it in the positive. He doesn't say show hospitality. But he, he adds some emphasis, some stress to it by saying, do not, do not neglect this. Do not neglect hospitality. And he gives us the reason why. Because some have entertained angels. Now, if, if you're familiar with, the gen, with Genesis, this might call to mind a couple of accounts. First, you might be thinking of Genesis 18 with Abraham, where he has three angels. He has two angels. The angel of the Lord visit him. However, there, Abraham knew who was before him. So the unaware part is not exactly true in Abraham's case. Uh, he, he, the angel of the Lord, uh, Yahweh, or, or, or a pre-incarnate Jesus, depending on how you want to understand that, but it is God in, in, in flesh in some form, is, is with Abraham. And the other two angels, they continue on to Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham has a conversation with, with, with God. The two other angels, though, they go to, um, off to Lot. Now, Lot entertains them, not knowing that they are angels. He sees them as strangers, and he shows hospitality uh, to them and tries to protect them from uh, the people of his city. So I, I think the Lot account is specifically what the author is referring to here. And I think he's also certainly referring to 
other incidences that aren't recorded for us in Scripture. He's taking that example of Lot, like, hey, look, this, this, this could be happening to you. You could be entertaining people who you think are just merely strangers, but in fact are angels. In Matthew 25, 35, Jesus tells us that those, that, that the righteous, the righteous people will be hospitable people. He talks about what they do, and then they ask Jesus, when did we do these things? And Jesus in Matthew 25, 35 says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. See, as people of Christ, as people of the faith, we ought to be known for our hospitality, not for being stingy or, or, or cold to the stranger. We ought to be kind and compassionate. And in church history, this was like the key mark, the key distinction of the faith. Beyond the doctrine itself, it was how they treated uh, the poor, the oppressed, the orphans, especially children that would, uh, it was common. And in the early, um, in the first, second, third, fourth centuries in the, in the Roman Empire for uh, families, if, if, if there was a girl, leave it out on the streets. Like we have letters of Roman soldiers writing back to their wives. Well, if you give birth and, and the child's a girl, just leave her be. In other words, just leave the child out on the street so the child can, can die. That was a common practice. But Christians were known for picking up these children and caring for them. Christians were the ones that led to the reform in the empire to make that practice um, outlawed. In fact, hospitality to strangers was such a distinguishing mark that in the fourth century, um, the Roman emperor Julian, who was a pagan Roman, so uh, Julian ruled Rome after Constantine, right? Constantine's the one that, that permitted Christianity, tolerated Christianity. He didn't make a state religion. He allowed religious liberty, and he emphasized Christianity. He didn't make a state religion, but he's definitely pro-Christian. Julian, however, comes in after him, very anti-Christian. And in fact, he's so fed up with, with the generosity of the Christians, because the pagans were bad at this, that he started implementing government programs to replace the Christian charities. Therefore, just as we've seen both in Scripture and in history, we ought to still be hospitable. However, today it's hard for the church as at large to be hospitable as they were back then in terms of programs and providing. We, we can't just open up an orphanage uh, nowadays like we could 200 years ago because now if we do something like that, there are rules and regulations. And oftentimes those rules and regulations require that the church compromise on their faith. How, what they say, what they teach, what they preach, and so forth. But despite that, that does not mean that you and I cannot still be hospitable. That does not mean that we cannot still open up our homes, that we can't still provide for those um, in need, that we can't provide lodging, food, um, that we can't enter into foster care or adopt children that need parents. We ought to. We should seek opportunity, especially the simple one of just opening up your home. That's a simple act. Many of you, if not all of you, have a, have a home, have a place that you live. As far as I know, I don't think anyone here is, is homeless. You have a place that you can share with others. And when we do this, when we show hospitality to strangers, we ought to do it without grumbling. Uh, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In other words, as you're cleaning up your house, because you're having people over again on Friday night for life group or just whatever, or maybe just having your neighbors over and you, got, you want to clean up your house and you don't need to clean your house, right? Like don't think I'm having people over so we got to pretend like people don't live here. Like you, you don't need to do that. It's, I'm not saying don't clean your house. I mean, 
Some of us need to clean our homes <laughs> to, to a certain point. But when you clean, see, see it as be joyful about it. Like, like it, to clean, the, the act of hospitality is not just when the company shows up. The act of hospitality is the preparation beforehand. It's like before you all come to church. I like to make sure the, the rows are, are semi-straight, that the trash is picked up, that communion's ready, that the door is, is open, the fans are on, the AC's on. I, I look forward to those things because that's, as you come in, you're like, this place is ready. This place was expecting us. That's a good feeling. I want you to have that. Likewise, we should do the same thing with our homes. When we're picking up dog poo in the backyard because we're going to have kids running around, have joy in that. Like, you know what's coming. You're, you're preparing. So we can show hospitality in all kinds of ways. Beyond opening our homes, we can do it by providing uh, car care, helping fix one another's cars, or providing a car, uh, yard care, child care. Uh, so some of you are, love to watch children, and some of us have, have, are, are tired of watching children at times. Um, you can offer pet care. Some of you are good with watching dogs and, and, and cats and hamsters and whatnot. Simply put, to be hospitable, you just have to be a faithful steward with what God has given you. You have to be generous with the skills, the talents, and the treasures. Um, and not just to the body, certainly the body first, but to those outside the body as well. And when you're generous in this way, this will help you being generous with your things, with your possessions, with your money, will help you with our final exhortation, which is to be free from the love of money. If you're giving it away and you're using it generously to be hospitable to others, it will help you to be content with what you have. As a church, one of the ways that we try to be hospitable or to meet the needs of others, especially those outside of the church, is through our deacons fund. Right? Anytime we, we hear of a need within the community, um, it doesn't have to be within the body, it can be outside the body, um, that maybe they need a water heater replaced or they need a, a hotel bill paid off or medical expenses, whatever it is, we have a deacon's fund which you can contribute to um, that we meet those needs through. And then, of course, we can show hospi hospitality uh, through the little things. When we're out and about holding the door open, picking up trash, being kind to the, to the server, to, to the waiter, um, especially when perhaps they mess up the order be hospitable to them. Don't, don't be known as the grouchy customer. I can remember working at McDonald's, uh, I guess about eight years ago, seven years ago. The worst customer would always brag about his baptisms that he was doing. But he was one customer nobody wanted. Because if you put pickles on his cheeseburger, he would let you know. And he would, he would let you have it. Don't be that. Be hospitable. And we can be hospitable because, because of God's love towards us. So think of ways that you can be hospitable, not just to the body, but to strangers, to those outside the body. The author then goes on to the second exhortation, moving from strangers to those who are a part of the body, specifically those in prison, specifically those who have been mistreated. In verse 3, he writes, Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. This is an echo of chapter 10, verse 34, where there he writes, you had compassion on those in prison. Right? He's talking about after you, after you were saved, you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So this exhortation 
most likely is referring to those of the body who are in prison for keeping the faith. Remember, that's the, he's writing this letter because we have believers who want to forsake the new covenant for the old covenant. They're being persecuted against. They're, they're being mistreated. The homes are being taken away from them. Um, they're, they're being uh, put into prison because they won't follow the old covenant because they're following Christ. And so now they're being tempted to abandon Christ by accepting or tolerating the old covenants. And so here he's encouraging them on, you know, remember those who are in prison, remember those who are, are mistreated. And he tells us why at the end of verse 3. Because we are also in the body. That is, we are connected with those in prison. The ones who are mistreated, just because you're not mistreated does not mean you do not belong to them. You do belong to them. And if we are part of the body, we will care for the body. And if you lack this concern for the body, this love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to wrestle with this. You need to pray to God that he would break whatever callous is upon your soul so that you would care for those who are sitting in the seats around you. See, without this kind of love, you have no fruit to assure you that you are saved or that you belong to God. 1 John 4, 20, 21, right? This isn't me saying this. This is God. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, this isn't about feeling it, right? This isn't about like having a warm, fuzzy feeling towards everyone in, in the room. That's, that's not the love he, he's talking about. Some of you, you just can't feel that love. You're just not, uh, you, you have issues, um, right? We're, we live in a fallen world. You have scars. You have calluses that are just byproducts of a sinful world, and you just have a hard time experiencing um, or even expressing emotion. But you can love people without feeling it and without necessarily um, openly expressing it, like by, I guess, your face. I, I don't know how, how you'd express that outside of deeds. Because by deeds, by knowing what love is, you can act on it, regardless if you feel it or not. Those of you who have been married a long time, faithfully, you, you, you know how to do this. You learn how to, if, if you didn't know how to do it when you first got married, you learn how to do this over time. Once the honeymoon feeling is gone, you, you realize that love is more than just a feeling. So how do we do this? How do we remember those who are in prison, those who are mistreated? Do we lock ourselves in our room and, and tell our spouse, hey, don't let me out until tomorrow. I'm remembering those in prison as if I'm in there with them. So treat me like I'm a prisoner and I'm going to stay. Is, is that what we do? No. First, we must not be ashamed of them. We must not go, that's not me. I can't believe if, if they were only softer. If only they had done this or that, we must not be ashamed of them. They are brothers and sisters. They are family. They are fellow citizens of the city of God, right? Of Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. We talked about that last week. So don't be ashamed of them. And granted, if we're honest, we're not really experiencing the situation in America right now. It's kind of hard for us to take a verse 3 and, and go, this is how you apply it. Because, well, we just don't have people yet in, in America ending up in, in prison at large. However, our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, they'll read verse 3 and then they go, I know exactly how to do this. Because it applies directly to their life because they're currently experiencing it. So for us here, one thing that we could do to remember those in prison, those who are mistreated, is keep them in prayer, right? 
We can pray for them. We can support organizations like uh, Voice of the Martyrs or other organizations that support the persecuted church and serve the persecuted church. We can do that by uh, sending them money on a regular basis, or we can do it by serving them, actually going out with them on their missions and serving them. We can also remember them by living faithfully. That is, knowing and recognizing the privilege that you have of not being persecuted, the privilege that you have of being free. So we remember them by considering what they lack and in, in that what we have, that what we have they would love to have. One, the freedom to, to worship, the freedom to gather in a church like this, the freedom of having the word of God written down and that they can keep it on them. They can keep it in their homes and that they can open it and that just by possessing the Bible, they won't go to prison. You can take advantage. You can remember them by going, that book that's collecting dust right now, I can open it. I can read it. I can know what God has said, and they can't. So let me be a good steward. Let me honor them by living faithfully and taking advantage of the freedoms that God has given me. If the day does fall upon us when we start to suffer persecution, then this application is going to be a little different. And when that day comes, we must look out for one another. We must adopt one another's children if need be, right? If some, if some parents are called to be martyrs and leave, leave behind kids, don't let the state take them. Let the church take them. Let us provide for the widows. Let us provide for the orphans. Let us open up our homes as needed, our food stores, our bank accounts. So we must be ready to do so, and we must be willing to do so. The third exhortation is now given in verse 4. So we move from the persecuted within the body of believers to marriage between two. The author writes, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So this verse out of our passage today is probably the most contentious verse of our passage. It is perhaps the most challenged verse in our day. It's the one that's often ignored. So we will spend most of our time on this verse. So when the author tells us to honor marriage, at the end of the letter, you got to be wondering, why is he talking about marriage now? We're in the final chapter of Hebrews. He hasn't mentioned it at all. Why does he bring it up at the end of the letter? And why only for one verse? See, holiness within the marriages of the church impacts the church directly. It impacts the faithfulness of the church. It impacts the, the church's ability to persevere and not to slip away. This is Again, this is the point of the letter, right? Persevere to the end. Don't tolerate false teachings. Don't ignore the, don't reject the one who's speaking to us. And sexual immorality, if it's allowed to persist within the church, will do just that. Sexual immorality is perhaps the fastest and easiest way to fall away from the faith. It is a sin, it is a snare unlike any other. First Corinthians, again, not me, but God, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, 20, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And now, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm single. I'm not married. So this, this, verse it, this verse still applies to you. This exhortation still applies to you today. 
See, you too, even if you're single, and maybe you tend to be single forever, which is fine. Like, don't, don't get caught up in the belief that marriage is like some mark of mature discipleship, right? It, it's not. It's a good thing, absolutely, but it's not like you've made it when you get married as if, like, you know, churches have, like, the single life groups, and then when, like, two people in the single life groups, they hook up, they, they graduate to the married or the couples group. Like, that's ridiculous, right? Like, m- marriage isn't a mark of discipleship. It's a good thing, yes, but as Paul tells us, especially with ministry, being single is a greater thing because you don't have the baggage of a family. Not that family is negative. It's not Paul's point. But there are more concerns when you have children and wife. There are more things to tend to. When you don't have that, you can fully and wholly devote yourselves, one, to Christ, and two, to the body of Christ. So if you're single, you might be wondering, well, how do I honor marriage if I myself am not married? Well, by keeping yourself pure. One, for a potential future spouse, but not only for a future spouse, if there is a future spouse for you, but for Christ. See, Christ is coming for a pure bride, and one day you and all of us, we all will be wedded to him. Thus keep yourself pure and undefiled. Those who are sexually immoral and adulterous, they will be judged, as the author says at the end of the verse. But for clarity especially in a skeptical age, let's review other passages on this issue because some would argue God whispers on this as if when God whispers that isn't loud enough. It's God speaking. If he says anything, whether it be a whisper or a shout, it has divine authority behind it, whether he says it once or whether he says it a hundred times. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to describe what the unrighteous look like. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom. So if you are sexually immoral, if you're somebody who is unfaithful, or you practice homosexuality, and in, in this verse as well, idolize things, you will not inherit the kingdom. There, there is no exceptions there. There is no wiggle room there. Well, I was born that way. That's why you must be born again. Galatians 5, 19, 21, now the works of the flesh are evident. Like, it's obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, 5 through 6. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, right? And, and we see like idolatry and covetous come out when somebody's like, I want to be a boy. Well, you're a girl. Yeah, but I want to be this. I feel this in my bones. This, well, that's, that's idolatry. This person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, right? A lot of empty words going around today about this topic, within the church especially, because they abandoned the word of God. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Revelation twenty-two fifteen, outside, that's outside the heavenly city, that's outside the city of Christ, outside the celestial city, Zion, are the dogs, sorcerers, And who's with the dogs? The sexually immoral. 
murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And then, of course, that's the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. That was the example of the sin of Sodom. That's the example that Sodom and Gomorrah set for us. Right? And you, if you follow the arguments online, the, the argument's always, well, sin of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah is bad hospitality. Well, like I've done before, Jude 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, pursued unnatural desire, right? Unnatural desire, lesbian, gay, trans, bi, queer, right? The, the, the main letters, that's unnatural desire. Those who pursue them, that's what Sodom and Gomorrah was guilty of. They serve as an example by, ungo- by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The presence of willful sexual immorality and especially unashamed sexual immorality is often the key marker in scripture of one not being of the faith as well as being the last straw with God's grace. This is how God describes oftentimes in the prophets when you read about it when God talks about the unfaithfulness of Israel to the covenant it's often used in terms of of, of being sexually immoral of being adulterous and being unfaithful to um, the marriage bed that they have with him through the covenant. See, God does not merely whisper about sexual immorality. He burns with a holy rage against it because it is incredibly dangerous, it is incredibly toxic. Whereas all sin, and let us recognize this, all sin, right, every sin of all kind, of every type, every sin, no matter how small, separates us from God. However, there is a picture, a a model, a pattern for us in Scripture of varying degrees of severity in regard to sin. And in that pattern, sexual immorality is at or near the top of the most grievous sins. It is one of the worst things that you can engage in. Now, we honor marriage not purely from abstaining from these things. right? Honoring marriage, keeping the bed uh, undefiled is not merely about being straight or not engaging in into extramarital um, sexual um, activities but we also honor it by our activity in other words we honor marriage by how we steward the marriage specifically the marriage bed here what paul says in first corinthians 7 3 5 the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights likewise the wife to her husband for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He's not talking about date night here. Right? Now, now he could be, now you could use date night to help with this, yes. But he's, he, he's talking about conjugal rights. Grown-ups, you know what conjugal rights are. If your kid asks that question, you, you can answer them. <laughs> and you ought to before the world does. So don't disgrace the marriage bed by using it as a tool of manipulation or a tool of abuse in your marriage. You defile the marriage, you dishonor the marriage when the marriage bed becomes a tool. Don't keep it from your spouse for your gain. Do not hold it as a hostage or a punishment. That's not the purpose. That's not your right. Don't always wait for the other to initiate 
don't always assume. Maybe they're having a hard time to initiate for whatever reason, but don't always wait. It's like the dishes. It's more than the dishes, but it's like the dishes. You see dishes in the sink, you do the dishes. You wash them. And you wash them not because you want to do them necessarily, or that the act itself brings incredible pleasure, but you do it because you love the other person, and it's an expression of love to that person. That's why you do it. Now, if you seek to do it and the other person says no, and you yourself have no desire in you to be satisfied, well, then let it be agreed. And don't take it personally. And, and don't begin, like, keeping track. Well, you, keep, you just keep rejecting me, so I just stopped. Don't allow bitterness to get between you two over this matter. Life happens. Life is busy. And we get tired, especially the older we get and the more kids we produce and take care of. Now, a question remains, though. How do you undefile or bring honor back if you have defiled or dishonored marriage in its bed? If you yourself have committed sexual immorality, as, as many, if not most, if not all, here have at some point in their life, how do we bring honor back? I mean, this sin is a grievous sin. Right? Sexual immorality, like I just said, is one of the top sins. How do you find your way back? How do you bring honor back? Is there a way back? Do we do that by partaking of the sacraments? Do, does the cup and the bread have any power to cleanse us? No, they don't. We do communion here weekly. We could do communion daily, and that's not going to cleanse you. Do you get rebaptized? Do you wash your sins away? The second, third, fourth? How many times are you justified? Once. What does baptism represent? Your justification. So how many times do you get baptized? Once. You don't get rebaptized. Do we clean up by confessing to a priest? Well, I gotta go to the priest. I'll confess to him. I'll, I'll pay the penance. I'll, I'll pray to Mary or some other saint. Is, is that how we do it? Well, who, who's the one that cleanses us? It's none of them. We only have one mediator. Do we put more money in the offering box? Do we just throw more money into the church? Or do we cause ourselves pain? Maybe we whip our backs. Maybe we do physical labor. Maybe we deprive ourselves of something. Maybe we go on an extended fast. Is there any work that we can do that can cleanse ourselves or, or restore ourselves? What must we do to cleanse the marriage bed, to bring honor back to marriage, to, to help us to be right with God again to where we're not left outside? To restore honor to the bed, one must simply trust in the teaching of the letter of Hebrews. And then if you've missed it, just, just go back and listen to all the sermons. Or reread the letter. It, it, it should be apparent. And the point is, you don't trust, you cannot trust in your works. It won't work. I mean, you can, but it's going to lead you to hell. It's not going to lead you to everlasting life. What we need to trust in is in the blood of Christ. right? The blood that was shed for all once, not to be shed again for all who trust in Christ because he is enough. His blood is enough. His grace is enough. Repentance is enough. And so, and so when we trust in it, we confess our sin, right? Trusting in the blood of Christ, when we do that, what that looks like is us, we confess a sin. I commit a sexual immorality. Whatever it is, we confess it. We give it to God and say, I don't like it. Forgive me for it. 
and guide me to holiness. And we seek out holiness and we leave sexual immorality behind and we're willing to do what we need to do in order to repent of it. And we ask Christ for his spirit to guide us in that. We must trust in him. And we need to know, this is why we have communion, we need to know that the work of Christ is enough. We don't add to it. We can't add to it. You try to add to it, you take away from it. You try to add to it, you null and void it. All right? you want, when you are saved and you, you trust in Christ, you are forgiven. You are cleansed. You are clean. You don't need to go, oh good, he's opened the door, now I must do these five other things, and then he'll accept. No, you're accepted, you're good. You're, there's, you've hit the standard because you've hit Christ, because he gives you, he is the standard. He gives you all that you need to be found righteous. Now for the spouse that has been offended, the spouse that perhaps knows of the unfaithfulness that has gone on, the spouse needs to forgive as Christ forgives. And this is the hard part, right? These first few exhortations are kind of easy, but now this one, this is hard. When, when intimately you have been violated by the one that you have loved deeply, the one who has been unfaithful, when they trust in Christ, when they confess their sin and they seek repentance, you too must forgive them. You can't hold the marriage bed from them. You can't put some arbitrary standard out there for them to meet. I'll forgive you once I see these things. I'll forgive you once you do A, B, and C. If you struggle with forgiveness, study the parable of the unforgiving servant of Matthew 18. Study that in depth. Pray, wrestle over it. You are not the exception. There is no exception. Jesus gives an extreme example to cover the full spectrum of humanity when it comes to forgiveness. What you have been forgiven for by God makes whatever offense somebody has committed to you pale in comparison. And consider this. What is marriage a picture of? What is marriage a parable of? What is marriage supposed to be a witness of to the world? The gospel. Our marriages are to be a testimony, a picture of our relationship with Christ. Is our relationship with Christ rooted in works or grace? What causes us to stand before God clean? Because we have done A, B, and C, or because of the blood of Christ? Is it because of the blood of Christ plus A, B, and C, or purely because of the blood of Christ? Purely the blood of Christ. So, so likewise, in our marriages, as painful as it can be, grace should be there for the spouse who is unfaithful when they seek repentance, when they confess their sin, and they trust in Christ. Again, easier said than done, but that's why we have the body of Christ. That's why you have me and the elders. So if you're struggling with something in, in your marriage, forgiveness, whatever it may be, please reach out. Let's talk. Let us pray. You can submit a private prayer request, and, and, and that way at least we're praying for you. Um, because yeah, the, these are painful and sensitive things. We don't want to, it's easy to speak to it. It's another thing to apply it and to put it into practice. But it does not excuse you from your responsibility to be faithful in it. The author then moves on to our final exhortation of this part in verses 5 through 6. He writes, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So this exhortation is to keep, keep free, to keep your life free from the love of money. And the author brings this up in light of Hebrews 10, 32, 34, which, which I won't read. I've already referenced it. Um, and he's writing this in light of the pressures that his people are facing. Right? The pressures of financial losses, the pressures of maybe losing their home or, or some needs that they need, have in, in life. He wants his people to be motivated to faithfulness and not tempted to embrace false teachings or things that may lead them astray because by doing so, they get this job, they get that money, they get to keep their home. He wants them to be content in Christ, not in money. Some of you may not struggle with sexual immorality, but what about love of money, love of possessions, love of things? The American church, it's usually one of the two. Sometimes it's both. It's either love of sexual immorality or it's love of possessions, things, standard of, of living. So you need to ask yourself, in order for you to be content, is there a certain standard of living that you must have? certain car, year of car that you must drive? Does it need to be three-bedroom, four-bedroom home? Has to be built after this date? Has to be in this, in this neighborhood? Do you need to remain at a high-paying job in order to be content? You've got that degree. You've got that experience. After all, you deserve such and such job rather than, I don't know, custodial work, working at McDonald's, whatever you think is beneath you. Must you travel as often as you do? Jesus tells us we can't serve two masters. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one, love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. One day, the church in America will be faced with this decision, which one they serve. And I think many in the church serve money more than God because right now money flows through the church. And there's a lot of false teachings out there, especially with the word of faith, New Apostolic Reformation, that's all about health, wealth, and prosperity. You can be you, go get, go get that job, whatever dream, whatever you want, pray for it, ask for it, and that becomes a priority rather than faithfulness. This is why so many churches affirm homosexuality now. Keeps, keeps the treasuries full. Keeps the kids happy. Keeps the kids happy, keeps the parents happy. The parents happy, they're going to keep giving money to the church so the kids remain happy. So it's not about faithfulness, it's about the coin. We must free ourselves from our love of money, our love of things that money can get us. We must learn to be content in all things in Christ. Paul in Philippians 4, 11, 13 writes, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He can be wealthy. He can be poor. He can have his own health insurance. He can be on Medicare. He, he's, he's fine either way. He can be in prison. He can be in a mansion. He can be in a shack. He, it doesn't matter. He's happy because Christ is the one that his contentment is rooted in because his grace is sufficient. So, question for you is, is his grace sufficient? If his grace is sufficient, that marital problem becomes a lot smaller. The struggles, the needs that you have, most of them disappear because his grace is sufficient. You don't need 
those things. It's easier to remember those in prison, those who are being mistreated for his faith because his grace is sufficient. It's easier to be, to be hospitable when you're like, I don't need this anyway. I invite some stranger over, he burns the house down. Eh, you know, it's fine. I got Christ. We'll get over it. We'll get through it. You don't love those things anyway. You love Christ. His grace is sufficient. We say that often, and I think we say it too much to where we, we, we miss. We don't really wrestle with, what does that mean? His grace is sufficient. So ponder that this week. Like every day, make that a question. As you deal with things, when you get frustrated, ask yourself, is his grace sufficient for you in that moment? When somebody yells at you, when your order gets messed up, somebody cuts you off, when you break something, somebody else breaks something, whatever it may be, just ask, is his grace sufficient? You wake up and you're depressed, ask, is his grace sufficient? Now, you can say yes, and I'm not going to, it's not a formula. I don't promise you that you're going to be like, yeah, you know, I thought about his grace. It is sufficient. All of a sudden, I became cheery. No. The, the purpose of it is you dwell on it. You meditate on it. So even when your fallen body is saying, I don't feel, I'm, I'm unhappy. Well, his grace is sufficient. You just keep saying it. You just keep going to his word over and over again because you know his grace is sufficient. The author appeals to God for being the key to contentment because he will not abandon us. He will not forsake us. In other words, he will be with you when everyone else leaves you. He will provide for you when the house burns down. When you go to prison, he will give you what you need for this life on the side of eternity. Therefore, what can man do? If God is our helper, if God is with us, what can man take away from us? What can we lose? What can we suffer? If God is for us and we have full contentment with God and whatever he blesses us with, then we will be in the best position to love others as our brothers and sisters, whether they are strangers to the truth or they are brothers and sisters in the truth. Because by his grace, by his will, by his power, we will be willing to endure all things in the name of love. We will be able to speak from a position of victory, which we have, the truth of eternity, which they need, even if it leads to our imprisonment or us losing our jobs, us being mistreated, our homes, maybe even our children. And if we love others for his sake, as we are called to love others for his sake, not as Hollywood or the world think that we should love others, but as Christ calls us to, if we are faithful to that, we will bring them the hard truths of Scripture when it's not popular, when it hurts them. And when we receive mistreatment in return because we do such things, we ought to rejoice. Right? We, shouldn't, we shouldn't lament. Matthew 5, 11, 12, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Right? He doesn't say, well, compromise on the truth. Take it easy on the tone. You don't, need, you don't need to tell them that part. Tell them all the other good things and they'll figure out the rest. No, he doesn't say that. He says, blessed are you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Therefore, let's let brotherly love continue. Let us not neglect hospitality to strangers. Let us remember those in prison, those who are mistreated for the gospel, because they are one of us. Let us honor our marriages by remaining pure and undefiled. 
Let us be content in all things and free from the love of money. For we have all that we ever need for all eternity. There's nothing for us to gain and nothing of importance that can be lost. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy, for your grace. Thank you for your word this morning. We ask that your spirit would help us to dwell and to meditate on your teaching, on your word, that it would convict us as necessary, that we would make the course corrections in our life that we need to make so that we would be, made, that we would be found faithful when your son returns. Father, give us what we need in order to persevere to the end. Help us to keep one another in prayer. Help us to keep one another accountable with grace, love, and truth. May we have the boldness and zeal and love for one another to challenge one another when one of us goes astray. And may we likewise have the grace to receive such instruction from one another. May we be witnesses of your gospel as we extend hospitality to those who do not know you. May you grant us, bless us with opportunities to be hospitable and, and may your spirit help us to execute well in those moments. And then may your spirit soften hearts help people be born again, regenerate them, and welcome them into the kingdom, Father. Father, we would ask that you'd bless the bread and the cup before us as we come to the table, that we would be encouraged, that we would confess our sins before we do, and that we would be reminded that we are forgiven if we trust in the blood of your Son and that it was, it was finished 2,000 years ago upon the cross, and that also that he will return and that he will judge the living and the dead the righteous and the unrighteous. So Father, may we, as we go out from here, may the taste of the gospel be upon our lips and may we live faithfully, anxiously awaiting the return of your Son. Father, we ask all these things and the many more that are unspoken that you know of, of all the hearts that are here and those who are watching online. We give them all to you for your glory by the power of the Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.